Please turn with me to James chapter 5. With the emphasis we've had recently that uh, Gordon has uh, given us in Sunday school and uh, on Wednesday night about uh, evangelism and uh, revival and these things that we're kind of looking into here, I thought it was many decades ago, I say many decades, at least two decades ago that I had that series on the book of James. Some of you may remember it, and uh, I barely do. And so I was thinking, well, uh, I think it's time to preach this passage because it has to do, it's a soul-winning passage. And so I thought this would be a good passage at this time to preach on here at this time in the life of our church. So let's read James chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 19 and 20. He concludes his book with these words. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, this is a message for the soul winner here this morning. It says, let him know. There are many valuable gospel thoughts here in these two verses. And, uh, of course, I've selected this passage on purpose, as I have already uh, mentioned. And these things should both encourage us in our uh, endeavor to win souls to Christ and also should encourage sinners to come back from their wandering. So if you're either... uh, a soul winner here today, or somebody who's uh, wanting to be one, or you're a soul that needs to be one. You're one or the other. So this message is for both classes. That means all of us. So this phrase, wandering from the truth, um, it's reminiscent of Isaiah 53, 6, where he uh, gives us an image of a wandering sheep. He says in that passage, all we like sheep have gone astray, We've turned everyone to his own way. Well, this was the condition of mankind in Isaiah's day some 2,700 years ago. That's a long time ago. And that was the condition of man then. But God has given the church a a message and a mission for all ages, including our own, and that is to seek and to save that which was lost and to turn sheep back that have been wandering. So this passage in James is a help in this by making certain facts clear to us. As I've said, verse 20 begins with, let him know. Let him know. Let who know? Well, verse 19 says that it's for someone who would turn back the wanderer. And uh, we all know them, don't we? We all know certain wanderers. There are those who are wandering far off from the truth. They may be members of our family. They may be people that we work with. They may be people you go to school with or somebody, your neighbor or some friend. Uh, So if you're all concerned for them at all, well, here's something that you need to know. So the first thing that God wants you to know is that for every sinner, there is a multitude of sins. He doesn't say for a nation of sinners or for a world of sinners, but for a sinner. He said, he said, um, the end of verse 20, he said, 
He said, uh, if you turn him from the error of their way, you'll save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. You know, uh, for every sinner, it's a multitude of sins. Uh, it only took one sin to plunge the entire human, na- human race into a state of sin and misery, didn't it? Only one sin is all it took. And, and God says that the wages of sin are death in Romans 6.23. And in Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man... Sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Why are you a sinner this morning? Because one man before you sinned. He was our representative head, and his name was Adam. And he fell, and the entire human race fell with him. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, uh, uh, who are we to reply against God? God made Adam our representative head. He fell, and we all fell with, with him. And so that's why you were born a sinner. That's why you were born with a propensity of sin. And if you're a parent this morning, I don't have to prove this to you, do I? Uh, Do you ever have to uh, teach your children to do wrong? Do you have to sit down and instruct them and explain how to lie and how to be selfish? You don't have to do it. It comes naturally. Why does it come naturally? Because they're born sinners. David said, I was conceived, um, uh, I was brought forth and conceived in sin. And so are all of us. And so uh, he wants us to know that for every sinner, there is a multitude of sins. And if one sin can do so much, what will a multitude do? Notice all that he does not specify. uh, He he doesn't specify any particular soul. He didn't say, well, this soul would have a, a few sins and this soul over here might have a few more. And this soul, over, oh, now this soul, he's got a multitude of sins. No, no, no. Any soul we turn back, we save and we cover a multitude of sins. You know, um, doesn't this show the folly of comparing our lives with the lives of others? Comparing our righteousness with somebody else's righteousness that's in the same uh, state that we're in, uh, living here below uh, judging one another uh, as though we we're better than them. Uh, no, we all have a multitude of sins, and that's not good news for us. It speaks here, though, of a covering for sin. It says it says, it says uh, if we save a soul, uh, we turn one sinner from the error of his way, we'll save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So speaking of a covering for sin. So here he's not speaking here of prevention. Notice this. Uh, though, of course, we know that for anyone to turn from the error of his ways, it does, in fact, prevent him from doing sins that he might otherwise do. But that's not what he's speaking about here. Here he speaks of the need to cover sins, which means sins that have been committed. So it's clear that a turning of a person from the error of his way accomplishes more than simply preventing him from sinning more. It does do that. But the passage is speaking of covering sins that are committed instead of preventing sins that will inevitably be committed if the person doesn't turn from the error of his way. I hope I'm not, uh, hope I'm not confusing you here. Though it is true that when one comes to Christ through the working of the Holy Spirit, 
It does indeed keep us from many sins. This hymn that we just sang, Rock of Ages, says, Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. You see, when God really does save somebody, He saves them from the guilt of sin and the power of sin as well. And so if you have a religion that supposedly saves you from your guilt, but it doesn't save you from the power of sin, then you have a religion, but you don't have salvation because real salvation saves us from the power of sin. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it. It doesn't mean that any of us are sinlessly perfect. We still have 1 John 1, 9. If we sin, that uh, he says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I sure am glad that's in the Bible because we all need it, don't we? That's right. But the, the fact of the matter is he comes to save us from both the guilt and the power of sins. So what is this covering of sin that he speaks of here? Well, it's something that uh, we need because uh, we wander from the truth. This person we're trying to save, he's wandered from the truth and he needs to have his sins covered. Saving a soul is done both in turning him from his error of his way and turning him into the way of truth. As we quoted Isaiah 53, 6, that's quoted again, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And you see, in that passage, Isaiah is showing us what the basic underlying problem in man's relationship with God is. And that is that we've, we've wandered our own way. The essence of sin is this, and that is going our way instead of going God's way. That's the essence of sin. Uh, and it's different for everybody. Uh, uh, the way that you rebel against God may not look at all like the way that I rebel against God or the way that somebody else would rebel against God. You've all had your own ways of sinning. Every one of us has our own, uh, our own uh, propensities for various sins. We've, but we've all gone our own way, our way, and wandered from the shepherd. And in that verse in Isaiah, it goes on to say, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, that's the good news. That's the covering for sin. And that is the Lord laying the iniquity upon uh, those that come to Christ, upon Christ. The iniquity of their sins are laid upon Christ. His blood then, the blood of Christ shed on the cross, is that covering for sin that he speaks of here. So that in one verse, as we have here in James, we see both the soul ruined by sin, and we also see the remedy provided by God, the covering that Jesus Christ gives. Jesus said this, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the way of truth spoken of here is the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the covering is the covering that only Jesus Christ can give us by his atoning work. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. And then we have the duty of the brethren or the mission of the church spoken of here. True brethren must be engaged in the work of turning the sinner back. It says uh, in verse 19, brethren, if any among you, he doesn't say if any anyone of you, he says if but anyone among you. Now, this could mean any of them that are considered brethren or any of them that are simply among them. 
And they might be among them in the church assemblies, or they might be among them in society in general. Uh, you live among people, as I've mentioned earlier. They live among us. So most any church has all three groups of people within its midst at any given time. We have true brethren. We have professing brethren that are not true brethren. And we have those that make no profession of faith at all. And that's the same in our neighborhoods and in our schools and our places of work and and uh, in every place where we live. It's the work of the brethren to do this work. He tells us to turn them back. Now, I can anticipate an objection. Well, who can do this? Only God can do this. Uh, you ever try to turn a sinner back? You ever have a wayward child or, or, or a, a wayward friend and you try to turn them back? They don't want to listen, do they? It's hard to make people listen. It's hard to turn them back. And we know ultimately we just can't do it, can we? Well, actually, really, we have three things here that are attributed to us to do that only God can ultimately do. The first is to turn a sinner from the error of his ways. Parents, you know, as I mentioned, how do you how do you turn somebody from the error of their ways? How do you turn a wayward child back to being a, a good child, a, an obedient child? Uh, our natural enmity runs deep, and uh, we can't turn a sinner from the error of his way, not in our own power. And the other thing we can't do, we can't save a soul from death. Why, we can't even save, save a body from death, much less a soul from death. Uh, the third thing we can't do, we can't cover a multitude of sins. We can't even cover one sin, can we? Uh, we can't cover sin. In fact, the Bible tells us that we better not try to. Proverbs 28:13, he who covers his sins will not prosper. Now, all of these things are things that only God can do. And yet, James attributes all these things to us, tells us to do these things. But once again, in the book of James, we see this often where he's pointing out the human responsibility side of the Christian life. And uh, James here assumes that we know these things. We know that we that we can't do these things in and of ourselves. He knows that um, we need the power and the wisdom of God to persuade people to 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 turn from the error of their ways. But here, though, we are encouraged to press on in the work of winning souls for Christ, turning them back from their wandering way from God. And we have here two reasons to be encouraged in this work. And one of them is implied and the one is stated. The implied reason is something we find throughout the Bible, and that is that God has promised to be with us. He knows better than we that without him we can do nothing. John 15:5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And that's true. We need him for everything. We can't do anything apart from him. We need the promise that he gives us to be with us, and especially in our gospel endeavors. In the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 21, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples. You go. You make disciples, he says. And um, uh, make disciples of all nations. But then he adds this at the end. He says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end 
of the age. And I'm sure that the disciples needed that encouragement, don't you think? After he gives them the Great Commission, he says, whoa, you're telling us to go into all the nations and save the nations. Us little little band of 11 men, what are we going to do? And uh, he says, I'm with you. And so that made it all Okay, and obviously we, we know the we know the last two thousand years of history where the Lord Jesus Christ has actually been with his church to take the gospel to all the nations. And we haven't made it to all of them yet. So do you ever get discouraged as a parent, as a Sunday school teacher, uh, witnessing at work? You know, I, I preached uh I don't know, I suppose thousands of sermons uh in uh and I don't know how many hundreds, maybe, maybe I don't know, 30, 40 years of sermons of the Rockford Rescue Mission. And I don't know a single soul that's come up to me and said, you know, Al, I got saved through your preaching at the mission here or anything. I, I, I don't, I, had, I can't point to, to one. And uh, uh, so sometimes it can be discouraging. Uh, but, but ours is to sow the seed. Ours is to, to, to sow the seed and to water it. Ours is not to actually save the soul. We can't save anybody's soul, but the Word of God can. And if Jesus is with us, uh, it's going to be okay. There's going to be fruit. And I anticipate there's going to be a number of souls that are going to come up to me in heaven and say, I heard you preach at the Rockford Rescue Mission and I got saved. You know, I think that's true. I just don't know of any of them right now. Um, so if it weren't for God's blessing on our labor, uh, well, then we'd be discouraged. I know I wouldn't be standing here today if I didn't think the Holy Spirit was was going to be with me and help me. I wouldn't bother to get up here. I just would just sing a bunch of hymns and have a good social time. It wouldn't be wouldn't be worth my my effort to try to preach to you. I wouldn't teach Sunday school. Uh, I wouldn't bring a lesson Wednesday night. Uh, I wouldn't go preach at the mission. I wouldn't have the heart to do any of these things. It all seems so futile if it weren't for the promise of God. God is still in the business of saving souls. He's saving souls every day. I just heard of one the other day. Just yesterday I had a couple come to our house and sat down at our table and told me about he just came to Christ here just in the last couple of weeks. And he's 70 years old. And praise God. God for that. And from listening to his testimony, I think it's the real thing. See, God is still saving souls. He's still doing it. He's still with us. He's still with the church. We need that encouragement. We have to have that encouragement or we won't do it. But if you know that he really is with us and he really does save souls, well, then we have we have the strength to go on. In Acts chapter 18, um, Paul you know, Paul had many persecutions and much, uh, much, uh, 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 much pushback on his message, didn't he? But it says, the Lord spoke to Paul, and looking at verses 9 through 10 in Acts 18, it says, now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. You see, Paul had reason to hope that the Lord would bless his labors since the Lord already marked out different ones for him that he was going to save. And Paul's duty was to to be faithful and to labor for their salvation, knowing that God would see to it that it did yield fruit. See, God has his elect, but 
he won't be they, the elect will not be converted without someone showing them the way. He obtains the God obtains the end their salvation through the means of our obedience to bringing the gospel to them. So that's our first encouragement. It's a general biblical encouragement. But the second one we have here um, is the way we should be encouraged is the explicit motivation that he gives us here. And that is that by our efforts, with the blessing of God, we may save a soul from death. Think about that. Through your gospel labors, you might save a soul from death. You know, I think about all these emergency workers and uh, paramedic. One of my one of my wife and, and my favorite programs is Emergency, that old 1970s show. We like to watch some of these old shows, you know, and they they show them going out and saving people's lives, you know, and it's 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 enjoyable. But I think about that and I I see them save the save the life of somebody that's like 60 or 70 years old, and I think, hmm, I wonder how long that's going to last, you know. And as we appreciate our paramedics, we appreciate our our uh, first responders and everything, and we honor them. But the best they can do is forestall death just a little while, right? I mean, all of us have to face it sooner or later. And if they save a man's life today, it might be the very next day that that life is going to still leave, and then they have to stand before God. And, but... Uh, so, but but still, they're excited about their job. They love their job. I'm saving lives. That's a big deal. It's we honor them, and and it is a good work that they do. But just how much greater? How much greater, and how much more worth is the labor that saves a soul from death? A soul that goes on forever. You may be sitting here today, and you don't believe you've got a soul. But listen to listen. You've got a soul. You have a soul that will go on someplace forever. Either either it will go on in the presence of God and in the joys of heaven, or it will go on under the displeasure of God and under the wrath of God in hell, one or the other. And, and, uh, and your soul will go on forever and ever. So it's a soul that must go on forever in a state of everlasting joy or everlasting misery, and that's, the privilege that we have is to be soul winners and to win that soul for Christ. What a great and good ministry that is. We're, we're also encouraged to the labor of, of any soul and that, this, and that that labor is worthwhile for even one soul has a multitude of sins that need to be covered. Every soul has a multitude of sins, as we've already mentioned. And so if you've done this, if you've brought the gospel to someone and they've gotten saved, you know that you've accomplished more than all of the EMTs and all of the paramedics and all of the doctors in the whole world do in all of their entire lifetimes. Think about that. Think about the weight of that. It's a worthwhile endeavor. This takes us faith. We must believe in the promises of God. And there are three more things that the soul winner must believe if he's going to be engaged in gospel work. And these same three things must be believed by anyone also that's going to be rescued by the gospel as well. And the first thing that we need to really believe is that there is such a thing as sin. You know, we live in a day where sin is mocked and our society uh, looks at us like we're some kind of old-fashioned 
uh, uh, people to believe in this whole thing called sin. Listen, sin is one of the scariest words there is in the in the human vocabulary if you understand what it means. To sin is to violate the laws of an almighty and a holy God. To sin is to say no when when God tells us to say yes. To sin is to go the opposite direction God wants us to go. To defy a God such as he is is uh, spiritual suicide. It's insanity. I was talking to somebody very recently just about the judgments of God we read about in the Old Testament. These are a stumbling block to some people as they read uh, the severe judgments of God upon the nations in Canaan and, and the way God annihilated, had the Israeli armies to annihilate them. And, and I pointed them out. I said, is that worse, worse than, was that worse than the flood? The flood when every living soul upon the face of the earth, men, women, children, babies, all of them drowned in the deluge that God set upon the earth in his judgment upon sin, and only eight people were saved, Noah and his family. When you think about these things, it should make you tremble. This is the God we're talking about. When we sin, do you realize that you're that you're uh, opening yourself up to the judgment of a God such as this? Oh, listen, he's a God to be feared. He's a God to understand. He is a holy God. The angels go around his throne day and night singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory, they say. And and uh, he's a thrice holy God. And to sin against him is a very weighty thing. And we need to believe there is such a thing as sin. And we can't win people to Christ without helping to convince them that they've sinned against this God. You know, you've got to get a person lost before you can get them saved. I find that's one of the hardest things to do in our day and age because there's so many people think that they're fine. They're fine. They're uh, they're going to they're gonna do just fine, but they don't realize that they have these sins that have to they have to answer to God for. They have a multitude of sins they have to answer to God for, and and they don't have the they don't have the cash to pay for one. As though we could get enough cash to pay for one. <laughs> all the money, all the gold in the world wouldn't pay for one sin. And here you sit there with a multitude of sins. Maybe somebody hears or somebody listening on the Internet. You're here. You're watching this and you have a multitude of sins. And you have to stand before this God. Listen, you need to believe there's such a thing as sin because there's also such a thing as judgment. The judgment of God upon sin. That's the first thing. We've got to believe it. We have to believe these things or why bother? Secondly, we must believe that there is this judgment to come that I've just mentioned both for those that he wishes to convert. There's a judgment to come for anybody you wish to convert. And there's also a judgment for ourselves as soul winners as well. Christians, we have a judgment day coming as well, you know. Without a future judgment, there's no soul that's in danger of dying and there are no sins that need covering. And therefore, why bother with this labor? James assumes that his readers believe certain things. And that is why 
He doesn't bother to qualify certain statements that he makes in this passage or elsewhere. He presupposes that his readers already know that they cannot of themselves and of their own power do these things that he's mentioned here that we've already talked about. He also assumes that they understand that for a person to have sins that are uncovered is bad. It's a bad thing. It's a bad thing because they know that God will bring every sin into judgment. Let's consider briefly some things about his judgment that are particularly bad for sinners. I mentioned the Christians have to stand before God in judgment as well, but we won't have to we won't have to pay for our sins because Jesus has already done that. But he will he will uh, reward our faithfulness or I believe there will be some Christians that will stand there ashamed because they they weren't uh as uh, they weren't obedient to Christ in the things he called them to do. But we won't get into that right now. I want to talk about several things right now that are particularly bad things about God's judgment that sinners need to consider about the judgment of God. First of all, God's judgment will be thorough. He won't miss anything. You know, there are a lot of criminals that often are only charged with and charged with and only serve a fraction for a fraction of the crimes that they've committed. Not so with God. On judgment day, every sin, every sin of this whole multitude of sins will be, fall under, under judgment. Jesus said every idle word, every idle word, every idle word? Well, what about every blasphemous word? What about every, what about every curse word? What about every unkind word? But every idle word as well? That's pretty thorough. Every secret sin that you've ever ever done, everything that you've every every sin that you've hidden from others, and you think it's covered by your deception, but God has a book, and in that book is written every sin that you've ever committed, and that will be brought out before you on Judgment Day. He'll open it on that day, and there you'll stand, and you'll be unmasked. Every lie that you've ever told will be unmasked. Every dirty thought that you've ever ever entertained will be unmasked. Every unclean act of fornication and adultery will be known. If you've stolen anything at any time, that thing that you stole will be brought out as evidence against you on Judgment Day. Even sins that you've forgotten about will be exposed, and you'll remember them then. It will be embarrassing. It will be humiliating. And have you ever been totally humiliated before some other person or a group of people? Uh, something that you said wrong or something that you did wrong. Uh, you, you, you remember ever being humiliated in front of people and how your face turns red and you're, and you're embarrassed? Can you imagine? Can you imagine all this on Judgment Day before the holy angels and before the saints and before all the universe, all your sins displayed for everybody to see? God's judgment will be thorough. That's a bad thing for sinners. Secondly, God's punishments are weighty and never-ending. Hebrews says, in, in, in chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As no one can, can, can uh, imagine how wonderful heaven will be, so it is also that no one can even imagine how horrible 
hell is. It must be exceptionally horrible. Jesus, uh, when he talks about it, he speaks of wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. It's an image of total despair, total hopelessness, gnashing of teeth. See, God's punishment will be found to be fair. Nobody will suggest that he's done anything un- unjust. Nobody will be able to bring an objection because everything God does and every punishment he gives will be perfectly just. Every mouth will be stopped. You know, Cain said that my punishment is more than I can bear. And so say all those that are condemned by God on Judgment Day. The third thing about God's judgment that's bad for a sinner is that there's no time off for good behavior. You imagine there being a, a scale of justice and weighing our good works against our bad works. Uh, well, there's a real flaw in that kind of thinking because we're required to do the good works. God, God gives us good works, and, and, and that's what we're supposed to do anyway. You're not supposed to be rewarded for them. I mean, God, get, God says, do not do this and do this, and you do those things. Well, where's, where's the promise of reward? Uh, we're supposed to we're supposed to do those things. Now God does promise to reward us for righteousness. He certainly does, but that's all of grace. We we're supposed to do the good works. The bad work there is nothing to offset the bad works. The bad works in our lives must all be. There's no balance by the good works. They don't they don't they don't. If you had a thousand good works for every bad work, it still wouldn't outweigh the bad work. Because you're required to do the good works anyway, and you and and there must be a, a a price paid for sin. So a person, in order to get saved from their sins, it's important that they believe that there is this judgment day that is uh, set for the punishment of their sins. <clears throat> but there is one more essential thing that we need to believe, and we must believe in this covering for sin that's spoken of here. I want to talk about that a little bit more. We must have our sins covered. But it needs to be an appropriate covering. You know, we wouldn't use a linen sheet to cover a well pit. We wouldn't use a manhole cover to cover a mattress. So also, it'd be if we were going to effectively cover a multitude of sins, we must be sure that the cover we use will be effective. Then your sins cannot be covered with Good deeds or religious ceremonies. We do not have we do not have anything in ourselves that we can we can use to cover our sins, as we've already mentioned several times. But many do try to cover their sins in secrecy. But this can only work with our fellow man, as we've already mentioned. It will not work with God. They're all open and bare before God. So whatever we use to cover our sins needs to hide them from the gaze of an all-knowing God. And it must hide them all. It must hide every the whole multitude of them. There must not be one sin that will slip through that covering. And the only covering, as I've mentioned before, that can be used for that, we've already mentioned, is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The cross, the, the, the greatest thing that Christ did on the cross was, was make that covering for sin. That atonement covers every sin that the believer has ever committed or ever will commit. 
And this is a thorough covering. It's a covering that is effective. When God looked down upon us and he saw the whole human race plunged into sin and misery, God didn't sit in heaven and say, oh, you, I, I can't wait to punish you. I can't wait to throw you into hell. No, that's far from God's thoughts. Uh, God delights in mercy. And so in his mercy, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. In his mercy to save us. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then the next verse is very important too. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to destroy the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, nobody knows the fierceness of the wrath of God like God. God knows his own wrath and the weight of that wrath. And that's what Jesus, and that's what made uh, Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden, you know. It wasn't the thought of the physical death that did this for Jesus, I'm persuaded. But it was the thought of bearing the full, unmitigated wrath of God upon himself as he became sin for us. When Christ hung on the cross, God did not say, Oh, it's my son. I'm going to give him a pass. No. When our sins were found upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the full weight of the wrath of God was laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ and it was so heavy that he cried out in his bitter agony, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew the answer. And the answer is given us in Psalm 22 where we see the prediction that he would say that because you are holy. Because you are holy. And holy God can't just say, okay, I'm just going to let it go. He can't do that any more than, let's say we had some criminal that we know committed a mass murder and he murdered in cold blood a bunch of people and he stands before a judge down here in Winnebago County, and the judge says, you know, I just feel good today, and I just want to let you off, and we're just going to go ahead and forget the whole thing. Well, what would you say about a judge like that? You'd say, well, he's an unrighteous judge. You'd get him off the bench. Well, listen, nobody's ever going to call for God to get off the bench because God is going to punish every sin that's ever committed, every sin. And so it's either committed, it's either punished in the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf or you, you personally have to pay for each and every one of those sins, which is why hell is eternal. Because there's no amount of time in hell that can even atone for one of those sins. So it takes a multitude of eternities for you to pay for your own sins. It's a fearful thing. But God sent his son into the world. This is why it's so significant. This is why turning a soul back from the error of his ways is so important and such a, a great work for us to be engaged in. Because for every soul that we turn back, we cover a multitude of sins. The Lord Jesus covers that with his blood. So your sins, as I've mentioned, have to be dealt with sooner or later. By sooner, I mean that we need to confess to God 
our sins. And if you're a sinner today and you're and, and, and you're not in Christ today, I I invite you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Proverbs 28:13. I've already quoted the first part of it. It says, "He who covers his sins will not prosper." But it goes on to say, "But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy." So we need to confess our sins with the hope of forsaking them, laying our life down at the foot of the cross and say, the Lord Jesus, my life is not mine anymore. It belongs to you. And if you're here today without Christ, why don't you do that? Why don't you do that? Why don't you confess to the Lord Jesus Christ that you are a sinner? You know you're a sinner. And just confess, confess that you're a sinner and ask him to be that covering for sin that you need in your life. If you wait till later to have your sins covered on Judgment Day, as I've mentioned, it'll be too late. So I hope if there's a wandering sheep here today, you'll consider these things that we've mentioned today in this message. And Christian, let's all be encouraged to be involved in the work of turning sinners from the error of their way. This is a good work that God will bless and he promises to be with us. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we...